Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. I actually had an idea already going and most of what I wanted to say in the next episode written down, but something came up that was pressing enough that I wanted to push that episode off until next week. So the episode you're going to have to wait until next week to listen to is explaining my statement from a week or two ago that you live either in Deuteronomy or Judges and that there are no exceptions. You live in one of those two books of the Bible. In that episode, Lord willing, I will go into that, explain what I mean and what I don't mean, and also explain why it is important for us. But that is next week's episode, and you'll have to wait, because right now, in this week's episode, we are going to discuss something that has been really important and a really big discussion in politics recently, and it relates very strongly back to the Old Testament law. Since this is a podcast on theonomy and economics, and out of necessity it gets into politics, there probably can't be much better of a subject to discuss on the podcast. But before we go any further, I want to ask you all to subscribe to Theana Money on whatever podcast catcher you are using to listen to me right now. Subscribe, turn on the auto download and notification for new episodes, and give it a heart or a review or a rating or whatever other system your podcast app uses. And also, if you're listening to me at normal speed, Try speeding up a bit. I listen to podcasts sped up all the time. It's a great way to listen to more podcasts in the same amount of time. I think it is a way we can redeem the time. And one more thing before we jump in. I want to say I'm sorry there's a bit of crackling in the back of the podcast this week. I don't know what issue with my mic caused it. It seems to be fixed now. I don't have enough time to go back and re-record the entire thing, so I just re-recorded this intro for you all. I wish I could go back and re-record it all, but I have a lot of sermon prep to do, and God commands preachers to preach in scripture. He does not command podcasters to record podcast episodes, so that has to take precedence, but I hope you all stick with it, and Lord willing, I will not have this crackling issue again, and I apologize for that, so let's jump in. So, what are we discussing this week? The Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment. I'm going to give some background on it, explain why it is in the news again right now, and then talk about the Hyde Amendment and abortion in light of Scripture, drawing specifically from the Old Testament law. So, what is the Hyde Amendment? In short, It keeps the government from directly paying for abortions. I say directly 
there on purpose, and we will come back to that shortly. So the Hyde Amendment was passed in 1976, and it took effect in 1980. It is named after Illinois Republican Congressman Henry Hyde. And this info here, it comes from a website, and I will throw that link in the description if you want to check it out. The Hyde Amendment prevents government agencies from paying for abortions except in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother. It is considered to be the first big, quote-unquote, pro-life win after Roe v. Wade in 1973. And I said pro-life in quotes there because there is a debate between the abolitionist and pro-life approaches to abortion, but I'm not going to dive into that in this episode. So some estimate that 300,000 abortions were paid for each year by the government prior to the Hyde Amendment. 300,000. That is 300,000 image bearers of God being murdered each year by the government, which means by the American taxpayer, forcing American citizens to be complicit in murder. So in that sense, there is at the very least some good to the Hyde Amendment. So a minute ago, why did I say that word directly? Why did I say that the Hyde Amendment, Hyde Amendment keeps the government from paying directly for abortion? Well, that is because the Hyde Amendment cannot prevent the government from indirectly paying for abortion. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me use an example that, if I'm remembering right, originally came from Keith Darrell, the campus preacher. He said, imagine if there was a poor college kid, and everyone starts laughing because it seems to be about every college kid, but how the government made the cost of college go up is a discussion for another day. So after taking care of his rent and other necessities like that, he is left with only $100 to pay for his food. So he is basically living off of ramen, macaroni and cheese, and Little Caesars. And hey, I am not knocking Little Caesars. I'm from Detroit after all, so Little Caesars is just cheap. That's why I'm using it in this example. But also, because they're cheap is one of the reasons why I like them. Anyways, I feel bad for this kid. I tell him I'll give him $100 a month to help him get some better quality food and not make himself sick from a poor diet or anything like that. I only have one qualification. He doesn't use the $100 I give him to buy any drugs. Seems reasonable, so he says yes, he agrees, he obeys my one qualification, my one rule. However, you knew a however was coming there. However, he uses some of the $100 he already had each month to buy drugs since he can now afford to have not all of that money go to food. You know, now he has that other money I'm giving him, so now he can not have to use all of his extra $100 a month on food because he's using the money I'm giving him. He technically is following my rule. He is not using the $100 that I am giving him each month to buy drugs. He's using that money to buy food, and then he's using the $100 he already had of his own money each month to buy drugs. Money that otherwise would have gone to food. So, 
my $100 a month is not directly paying for his drugs, but indirectly. He's not using the money I gave him to buy drugs, but it is enabling him to purchase drugs with other money, thereby technically still following the rule I set before him. So that's the example that came from the campus preacher. And then it is much the same way when the government gives millions upon millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood, or should I say Clanned Parenthood, if you know anything about their racist founder who, though they pretend to decry her vision and say they don't follow it anymore, they still carry it out every day. They might say they don't agree with what she stood for, but yet they still carry out what she stood for every day. So I think you're lying when you say that you don't stand with what she said anymore. So when the government gives, what is it, like half a billion dollars to Clanned Parenthood every year, when they give all this money to them and the government tells Planned Parenthood that they cannot spend any of it on abortion, well, that frees up Planned Parenthood to spend more on abortion from what was already in their budget and pay for the things that money would have otherwise gone to with the money they receive from the government. Thus, the government, even with the Hyde Amendment, indirectly pays for abortion. Without the Hyde Amendment, this runaround game doesn't have to be played and the money will go directly to fund abortion. But with the Hyde Amendment, this, as I called it a second ago, this runaround game has to be played as that money indirectly pays for abortion. Like how with the example I gave a bit ago, my $100 a month I'm giving this kid is not paying for his drugs. It is just enabling him to use other money on drugs and thus indirectly paying for it. So why is the Hyde Amendment so big right now? Why did it seem to the last couple weeks to all of a sudden spike in popularity and in conversation? That is because among the spending bills recently passed by our federal House of Representatives, there was one that did not include the Hyde Amendment to prohibit federally funded programs such as Medicaid from paying for abortion. If the Senate passes this and it gets put forward, it will do away with, at least for the time being, it may get reinitiated in the future, but it will at least for the time being do away with the Hyde Amendment and thus the government can freely pay for abortions out of taxpayer money, making all American citizens complicit in murder. Remember murder? One of the Ten Commandments? This podcast name is a play on words of theonomy, so we think, you know, the Old Testament's pretty important. This is making, via the government, every American taxpayer complicit in violating one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And if what we have seen from the Biden regime or from governors like Newsom is anything to speculate upon, there will be much bloodshed paid for by the government this next year. The good news in this whole thing is that it is uncertain whether or not the Senate will pass it without the Hyde Amendment. If everyone votes down their party line, Democrats against the Hyde Amendment and Republicans for it, then it will be split 50-50 and Vice President Harris will be the tie-breaking vote and keep the Hyde Amendment out, thus allowing the government to pay for murder. 
But there are likely moderate Democrats who will be in support of the Hyde Amendment and thus oppose removing it. But on the flip side, there are likely Republicans, the kind people refer to as rhinos, who are against it. So really this comes down to whether or not the Democrats in the Senate for the Hyde Amendment outnumber the Republicans against it. Another way to phrase that, are there more reasonable Democrats than there are fake Republicans? And by the way, before we go more into all that, don't think I'm just like talking about how great the Republican Party is. I think both of them are horrible. It's like the Republicans are horrible and the Democrats are 10 times worse than that. We just need a popular Christian theonomist political party and America will probably collapse before we see that day come, but we can pray for it. We can be post-mill. We can hope that one day we see that. If not in America, we will in another country one day. So with all that, let's look at what scripture has to say on this issue. So first, according to scripture, should the government pay for abortion? Should the government pay for abortion? Well, the answer is, of course, no, because abortion is murder and it is a moral evil. But even if it were not, the answer is still no, because this falls outside of the sphere of authority, the sphere of sovereignty of the state, as it is a minister of the sword, not a minister of mercy or a minister of grace. Therefore, it should not pay for any services for citizens when that charity rightfully belongs to the other two spheres of authority, the family and the church. And that is when the charity is a good thing, when it is a true charity. How much more should the civil magistrate sphere of authority not pay for those services when they are wicked and evil services? So that was the first point. The second point, what does scripture have to say about abortion? So first was, according to scripture, should the government pay for abortion? The answer was no. Second, what does scripture say about abortion? Some may claim that scripture has nothing to say about abortion because that term does not appear in scripture, but that is ignoring good and necessary consequence of scripture, especially when it comes to something so obvious that it should hardly be considered good and necessary consequence and probably should just fall under the category of direct application and interpretation from scripture. To the people making this argument, I would ask if scripture prohibits shooting someone in the head since scripture never mentions guns or shooting people. Of course, scripture prohibits shooting people in the head. Scripture prohibits murder and commands loving your neighbor Shooting your neighbor in the head violates both of those commands. And it is much the same with abortion. Scripture prohibits murder and teaches that all humans, from the point of conception, are human. Where do we see that? Well, one place may at first seem unlikely, but it is there nonetheless. I am talking about David's confession in Psalm 51. Let's read the first five verses of Psalm 51. So there David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, 
Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Oh, side note before we dive in Psalm 51 3 is probably one of my favorite verses. My sin is ever before me, just reminding us continually that though we are justified, we are still in the flesh. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and sinful. So that's why. We need to have continual repentance of sin, not just repentance the day that we were converted. But back to the point at hand. Psalm 51, verse 5. When David says that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin his mother conceived him, he does not mean that his mother did something sinful that resulted in his conception, like his mother cheated on Jesse, so David was only the son of his mother and some other guy, not the son of his mother and Jesse. One, that would break like seven different genealogies in the Bible. And uh, two, that's not what David's talking about here. David means that he was sinful from the point of conception. David was a sinner from the moment of conception. If he meant something about his mother here, the flow of the entire psalm would be messed up. It'd go something like this. God, I've sinned against you. Forgive me for my sin. I'm so wicked. I need my sin cleansed. Oh, by the way, my mom sinned too back when I was conceived. That's how I was conceived. That was pretty horrible. My mom's a bad sinner too. But God, back to me. Forgive me for my sin. I'm such a sinner. Purge me from my sin. Like, no, that, that doesn't work. I don't think you need a class in hermeneutics to tell you to not interpret the Bible like that. That there is a flow to scripture and that interpreting this that way would break that flow. This is telling us that David is talking about himself here. He was a sinner from the moment of conception. So that teaches us a lot about original sin and total depravity, but it also has implications about life beginning at conception because David could not have been a sinner from the point of conception unless he was a human from the point of conception. Therefore, we are humans from the moment of conception. Now, Psalm 51 is not the only passage we are diving into today. I did say a bit ago that we were diving into the Old Testament law, didn't I? While Psalms might be in the Old Testament, it is not part of the Torah or the Pentateuch. So let's look at Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25. This time I am reading from the New American Standard Bible, 1995, rather than the Legacy Standard Bible that we were just in. Why is that? Simple. The LSB is not yet out in Exodus, but once the full thing comes out here in hopefully just a few months, and once I get a copy, I plan to use the Legacy Standard Bible for nearly every single quote and reference in this podcast. But for now, 
Let's see what God says through the NASB 95 and Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25. So we see there. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So, what's that saying? It is saying that if two men fight with one another and a woman is harmed so that she gives birth to her child prematurely, but that child is just born premature and survives without any harm done to the baby or to the woman, then the man or men who caused the harm should pay as the woman's husband and the judges determine. But if harm does befall the baby or the woman, he shall pay equivalent to the harm done to her or her baby, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. By the way, this is not some barbaric law that Jesus later does away with. This is actually a restraining law. You can only charge a penalty or fine in relation to the harm done. You can't cut off my hand if I stole something, as that would be a punishment that far exceeds the crime. So this is a good law and a restraining law, not a bad one as some people like to make it as they twist some things Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, some people will actually use this passage to say that the Bible is okay with abortion by using how it is rendered in the RSV. However, if your argument only works in a single translation of scripture, it's probably a wrong argument. That is the case here, as the RSV does not properly translate verse 22. It reads, When men strive together and hurt a woman with child, so that there is a miscarriage, and yet no harm follows, and then the verse continues on, they use this poor translation to claim that scripture teaches that miscarriage is not harm. However, the word should not be translated as miscarriage, but as gives birth or gives birth prematurely. You can cross-reference this Hebrew word with others in other passages, and it typically is translated as gives birth, not as miscarriage. According to my literal word Bible app, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Bible app, and I think you should check it out. This word appears in the Pentateuch 166 times alone and over 200 more times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And then also some of the information here comes from an article I found on Desiring God during research for a podcast episode on this topic for the Dead Men Ministries podcast last year. But I could not find that article again when I was looking for it while writing notes for this podcast episode. But if you are able to find it, that was a good article. It went through, it explained how the RSV does not translate the Hebrew well and how this verse is not saying what the RSV does, but is in fact defending preborn humanity 
not a verse against it. So in short, Exodus 21, 22-25, contrary to how some twist this passage, it puts a high value on the life of a preborn child because it teaches that if a woman is harmed as two men are fighting and that harm causes her to miscarry her baby, the man or men who caused that harm should pay the penalty for their crime, which includes life for life. So if her preborn baby was killed as a result of the fight, his life should be forfeited to make restitution. So in summary of all that, abortion is murder. It is the destruction of an image bearer of God. It should be outlawed in all of its forms in the United States, and the government should not be paying for services to be provided to its citizens at all, let alone evil services such as abortion. In conclusion, while I hope the Hyde Amendment will not be stopped and the Senate will make sure it goes through again this year, I do not think it is some sort of perfect piece of theonomic Christian legislation. It merely says that in most cases, the government can't pay for a great evil that should never have been allowed into our nation to begin with. So, at best, I see the Hyde Amendment as an imperfect legislation that is restraining greater evil while Christians work to make America be a nation in obedience to Psalm 2. Or you could go further and say that the Hyde Amendment is an iniquitous decree that at least has the benefit of restraining even greater iniquitous decrees from occurring. So from everything we have discussed on this episode, we can see that abortion is sinful. It is murder. It is not loving your neighbor. It is not loving your neighbor to murder him, nor is it loving your neighbor to let her murder another one of your neighbors and thus incur greater condemnation before God. So while assumptions behind the Hyde Amendment, such as indirectly stating that abortion is okay, while those assumptions are wrong and even wicked and sinful, it at least has the benefit of restraining greater evil. That is why I'm not going to be a giant promoter of it talking about how great it is, but I will also say that rejecting it will be worse for our nation and incur even greater guilt before God. which should terrify us because if we think about it, we probably outdid Sodom and Gomorrah in guilt before God a few decades ago. But I don't want to leave, I don't want to close the podcast on a depressing note. So I want to remind you all that Jesus is on his throne and all of his enemies are being put under his feet. Death, which includes murder in all of its forms, such as abortion, will one day be under the feet of King Jesus. Remember, Christian, that God uses his church as a tool to put many of these enemies under his feet. So be faithful to oppose the evil and preach the gospel while you do so, because the gospel is our primary methods of fighting this evil as enemies of God become friends of God. They have their heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh 
And then instead of fighting against God and rebelling against him, they are instead servants to God, serving him and Lord willing, as we see more and more people saved, making the nations themselves conform more to the image we see in passages like Psalm 2. So as we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Satisfies me, your law is sweet, oh you.